Welcome back to your favorite pod. Race from the candidates. When I saw that, I died. I want you to know how much I loved you for that. So depending on when this is released, either Ali Reza is still playing Ali Reza Farouja Race to the Candidates Tournament 2023 or 4. Or it's already happened, or FIDE has already shut down the whole system. But anyways, we are declaring our joint candidacy for the candidate cycle. (laughs) That's what happens when you don't have any imposter syndrome. You just show up in all kinds of spaces. We are recording this on our flight to China for the second annual (laughs) Dingli Ren Memorial Quadruple Round Robin that was always on the schedule. What are you talking about? Attendance is mandatory. I would fly to China just to try to be... Liren's friend. He needs it. I know. I feel like we would just really get along. I really feel such a natural kinship every time I see him on my TV. You mean eight months ago? Listen, everyone needs to leave Ding alone. Against their best efforts, they have been. I feel like this was even true during candidates, during the world championship. People are always giving him a hard time. I really think that Ding embodies something that People feel uncomfortable with in the chess space, someone who is not this cutthroat Magnus Carlsen. I feel like he embodies something different. There is something threatening about a fierce competitor who does not embody Western archetypes of what a fierce competitor looks like, namely an in-your-face aggressive asshole. Yeah, seriously. And I think that's why he appeals to me so much, because... A fierce competitor who just doesn't give a fuck? (laughs) Come on, that person is going to have my heart every time. I think that angle also probably gives the best explanation of the Liren rapport partnership. I knew you were going to say that. I know, there just wasn't any fucks. There were no fucks. (laughs) We will play anything. (laughs) Put an A3 on it. (laughs) Put an A3 on it. I love it. I love it. So basically so much egregious shit has been happening in the last few weeks. I was off Twitter for one day and I missed like four (laughs) storylines. I know. I know. That would have been like prime JJ chime in. But sometimes it's better to let it all unfold and then come in, scoop it up at the end and land with the best commentary, which is what we're going to do today, kind of. So I think we are going to talk about one of the most important topics in chess. In the world. What do you think it is? My understanding is that today we are going to talk about everything that we hate. Something near and dear to our heart is a good old-fashioned gripe. So griping is a traditional holiday ritual for many of us. Are there other particular things motivating this gripesmith? Are Are there particular things that you need to get off your chest? Every time I log onto Twitter, I immediately have so many things that I need to scream into the abyss. Well, Julia Rios, the floor is yours. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not how we're starting this. Absolutely okay. not. Do you have an idea, JJ? Do I have an idea of things that I have gripes with in the chess world or community at large? Yeah, I have so many ideas. One of the things I want to make sure to talk about is I have a lot of gripes with chess tournament culture. Mm, and definitely. Etiquette, I think, doesn't quite get at it because etiquette might include things like adjusting your pieces on your opponent's time. And this is a bit more than that, but we can call it etiquette as shorthand. That's one of my areas of gripes. Can we just dive in, JJ? Yes. Yeah, 
So I played a chess tournament recently. Oh God, are you okay? Thank you for asking. No. <laughs> do you have a real therapist to talk to about this or do you need me? Don't you literally have a PhD in that? Actually, yeah. It's funny how many people online though message me or DM me and essentially ask if I do quote unquote chess therapy. I have yet to understand exactly what that is. But believe me, the day I launch a private practice, chest therapy, yes, I, I do that. I do that now. I assume it's you playing chess with your patient. And then whenever they make moves that put your position in peril, you just frown and look at them and say, so your mother neglected you, didn't she? Oh, no. I'd be too worried it was true. Who doesn't feel a little neglected these days? Jewish only child boys. <laughs> Self-disclosure. I love it, JJ. So I played this chess tournament recently. Not the one where I lost all my games. That was fine. But it was the annual Rapid and Blitz tournament in the state. And mm. it was 18 games, six Rapids, all Blitz, mm -hmm. because everyone knows that it's not a Rapid and Blitz tournament if there aren't too many rounds. <laughs> and the effect that it had has just really been souring me for a couple weeks. And I'm just glad mm. that it's finally Festivus time so I can talk about it. Yeah. And I think that's important information too, because you might feel irritated or annoyed right after, mm -hmm. but then that initial kind of rub wrong wears off. The fact that you are still feeling it all these weeks later, more so. We got a real problem on our hands. The thing that was bothering me is an issue that I've seen in tournaments dating back to why I got pretty sick of chess and playing tournaments as yeah. a kid, um, mm. which is just particular kinds of poor sportsmanship, particularly from adults, particularly from adult men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know how down I am to talk about this, JJ. Yeah, so this is where I wanted to start. What I think of is like my paradigm example of mm. terrible adult behavior that like really soured me on chess as a teenager was when a grown ass man in his 40s measured in human years threw a captured pawn at his teenage opponent after his teenage opponent caught his blunder. That person gets removed from the tournament immediately. Please tell sure. me there's no other way to handle that. No, he's still playing tournaments regularly in the same general area 15 years later, all the time. That is unfathomable to me. I don't think you told me that detail, JJ, when you were kind of telling me all of the other details. And yes, dear listener, there are, there are lots of examples of adult uh, temper tantrums to be shared. Adult regressors. That blows my mind. My first reaction is that it's just such an incredible ick. It not only icked you to this adult man having a temper tantrum, but it icked you to all of chess. And that's actually really depressing. Yeah. And I think some of the issues are obviously most of the people in that room, including all of the children, but also most of the adults would never do that. But also none of us were prepared to handle a situation like that, including tournament director, including other players. And I think that is an issue because it ends up sending this message of condoning that behavior or tolerating that behavior. I don't sure. think anyone was prepared to make that sort of action, nor maybe did the director even know what they should or potentially even what they were allowed to do in that situation. And as a result, you create this culture of 
tolerance that especially mm. to the younger people looks like a culture of permissiveness that is probably not the intention of anyone in that room but definitely sends a message that is not one that anyone is intending to send nor one that they would condone, but that's the message that gets sent. And I like to talk about that example and I like to talk about examples of men coming up to me or a couple of my adult male students and making incredibly shitty comments about women that they were playing, like, oh, you must have been distracted playing her, things like that, because that's the kind of situation where it's really easy to shut down, to freeze, to not believe it's happening, totally. to not know what to say, and to actually sit and think about if I witness something egregious or if something egregious happens to me or in conversation with me, what am I prepared to do? And the mm. answer might be in that moment, I'm not really prepared or comfortable doing much of anything, but I do know who I can talk to. Or it might be I'm pretty comfortable saying something or at the very least, the more you kind of know when you're not in that heightened fraught moment what you want to do or how you want to handle it, the easier it is to actually do that because it's really difficult to uh, come up with that response in the state of shock that happens when something you just did not assume was going to happen or could happen happens. It's the same reason we try not to be caught out of book in the opening, honestly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I just totally agree. I feel like I would be totally frozen. You're just not expecting a man in his 40s to like have a literal m meltdown that story is unbelievable to me. But I'm also curious, JJ, how, how you see that mapping onto your more recent experience. Like, yeah. what, have you still been noticing at tournaments that feels like the biggest gripe? Yeah, I think that using those as the extreme examples, the more mundane examples that it's always easy for me to dismiss when it's like once a tournament, but really jumps out as a pattern when I'm playing 18 games in a day and I see it between like six and 10 times. Right. Is people who either they lose on a particular bad move or they lose from a series of poor play and then the first thing they start doing is if not outright swearing at the very least just having a visceral full body negative reaction and even if it's clear that they're mad primarily at themselves right it's a lot right. of anger and it can be difficult for a lot of people for a lot of reasons to calmly see that anger Understand that it's not necessarily directed at you. Understand that if it is directed at you at all, it's misplaced. Understand mm -hmm. that it's not a threat and understand that this person is primarily frustrated with themselves and their actions and that it's not threatening, etc. That's a lot of work to put on the receiver of that tantrum, especially when there's no guarantee that any of those things are true and especially when the risk of being wrong about those things can be high. Yeah, I mean, it's just so wild. It, it's interesting to me to hear, JJ, because as you know, I have never had the time or the capacity to devote to going to a rated chess tournament. And after these stories, you're going to change that tomorrow. <laughs> right. So it, it's truly a shock to hear because I know there's a sense in which people might really be able to commiserate or to understand that reaction. Tempers are running high or this is a really heated moment or people feel really emotional about it. But there's a lot of context in which adults are doing things that might be very stressful or which they might feel really strongly about where we absolutely expect them to be emotionally regulated. And for the vast, vast majority, they do. So, for example, in the workplace, it's always mm -hmm. interesting to me where people feel like these emotions can leak out. You, you see people who essentially seem to have a lot of difficulty or even claim that they can't control their reactions, but they can. It is contextual. 
those same people go to work every day and they do not get fired. They're not having these explosive or meltdown moments. So I do think it alludes to what Mm. you were saying before Mm -hmm. about the person throwing the chess piece. There's a type of permission. There's at least a way in which people feel like this is okay. Mm -hmm. It is just upsetting to even hear you describe. Right. And I bring this up besides my own frustration because I think definitely a difference between high school me and adult me is high school me was definitely personally just afraid in some of the situations or very Mm -hmm. uncomfortable or very dysregulated or miserable, both in the sense of being the object of any of those emotions, but also afraid of becoming the kind of person who would act that way if I stayed in this space and that just kept being the kind of people I surrounded myself with. Mm. And adult me feels very differently, especially when we're talking local tournaments where other than enemy of the pod, Nate Solon, I'm just as high rated as two guys and then higher rated than everyone else. So Mm. I don't feel like the imposter there. I don't feel like the swindler who just stole points off of somebody. I'm pretty confident that I deserve to be there. I'm pretty confident that even if they played poorly, they're disappointed with themselves from missing a shot against me or from not putting up more of a fight against me. It's a lot easier as the higher rated person to understand that the more negative emotional outbursts I see after games are really about the other person. Right. And when I mentioned that I'm more upset a couple of weeks after the event thinking about it than I was during it, what I mean by mm. that is... During it, it was actually pretty easy to displace a lot of that. But after it, I think about all these conversations of how do we make chess a more inclusive environment? But whether it's for children, whether it's for gender diversity, for a number of reasons. And one answer is you think of the kind of people who are going to have the more visceral or personal reactions to those kinds of outbursts or feel more threatened by them. And for a lot of reasons, those are people who could make the game more diverse, whether we're talking about the children that aren't the prodigies who throw their own tantrums when they lose, whether we're talking about women who might respond differently to a man getting super upset and angry and cursing than a lot of men do. When we're thinking across class lines, when we're thinking even racially about the difference between a white man having a tantrum and what, say, Black men are called when they get angry in public. There's a lot of alienating behavior and there's a lot of personally threatening behavior that comes through that that can lead it to where maybe I, the white dude with the high rating, can displace my reactions to that and feel pretty all right. But then I wonder why a lot of the people showing up to these tournaments look like me. Mm. I can handle people being pissed that they hung a piece or people being worse the whole game than making one blunder and telling me I got lucky and then swearing and storming out of the room. RIP to that guy. And I can handle it, but I shouldn't have to. A lot of people can't, or for lots of reasons, it's harder to, or they have the common sense, especially if they only started playing this game as an adult, to get there and say, I don't really want to have to handle this situation. Why is the situation not being handled? Yeah. And how does feeling like you need to handle that type of interpersonal or emotional conflict subtract from your ability to sit down at a board and play a game of chess? It is Mm -hmm. subtractive, point blank. Especially when you have repeat offenders. Like there are certain people that I know that if I beat them, they're going to be assholes, whether they tell me Mm -hmm. shitty things or they just are really upset and not regulating themselves. 
And the more I was personally affected by that, the more it would personally affect my ability to play them in the future, as well as my desire to be around them in the future. Right. The part of you that's anticipating uh, uh, to have a an adult toddler. Exactly. And maybe even summing this up as a temper tantrum actually doesn't quite capture what's happening. Mm, because mm-hmm. something that you're talking about that I really strongly agree with, as you know, like we've kind of talked about this offline, <laughs> just getting accessible. <laughs> the NDA, the NDA. Is there a way in which it can feel really unsafe for a lot of people? Yes. And who feels like that is a type of interaction that they have permission to have? The mileage really varies. And so I think kind of even describing it just as the meltdown, it doesn't quite capture the intensity that a lot of people can feel. I don't even need to externalize that to other people. I know I can say personally for myself that when men in public spaces get hostile or the temperature goes up, the emotional temperature goes up, I instantly feel extremely unsafe. It makes me so uncomfortable. I don't even have the words to describe. And to ask a question that I think I know the answer to, but just to be clear, you would feel this way if this was going on at the board next to you or down the table from you, right? And not directed at you. Anywhere in the room with me. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Without I'm sure doubt. there are some people who put in an extra effort to not be that much of a dick when they're playing a child or potentially even playing women in general. So just to be clear, like we're not talking about when we're the opponent. Right. Necessarily. Right. Yeah. yeah. How do you show up in the space with anyone sitting across from you? Yeah. It's nice to romanticize ideas of a no asshole policy. But it's difficult as an organizer to say, hey, I don't like your attitude or you throw temper tantrums. And so I'm not going to let you play my tournaments anymore. And I think lacking more of a language of your actions are making people feel unsafe. It makes it harder to actually do anything to try and change, whether it's confronting that person about why their behavior needs to change or just telling that person they're not welcome in the space. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that being the norm, but. That does sound like one of the only ways things would actively change. And the good news about this episode is we're here for the gripes, not the solutions, but this is definitely something for thinking about solutions or progress in the future Mm -hmm. that I'm interested in and I know people are working on and advocacy groups are starting to come together on and there's positive direction there. I just... between multiple people just swearing at me, telling me they got lucky, saying God damn it and hitting themselves... And then also comparing that as well with my own reaction and the reaction to some of the stronger players of laughing at ourselves as we both hang pieces in the time scramble (laughs) and it just feeling like a very good vibe, then I want that to be the vibe. And those games probably mattered to each of us more than, and we also had more chances to win those games than most of my opponents did in the games where they're throwing tantrum. And of course, I also have to, when talking about positive role models, I have to mention my nemesis. I think she's 10 now, but she became my nemesis when she was it. And she was kicking my ass at a tournament in Iowa and managed to go out of her way to botch a rook end game that should have been winning for her. Definitely not losing. And she was really understandably upset. Probably 400 point point differential between us kind of storms off. Next time we meet at a tournament, the first thing she does is apologize to me, which is not what I was expecting or even thought was necessary. But seeing her from there, even from age eight to age 10, swindle another one against her, she shakes hands, looks in my eyes and says, next time. Mm. 
<laughs> I love it. I yeah, love and it. she's right. Like, if she keeps if she keeps gaining winning positions against me, she's gonna get there, and it's just a game, and she's gonna learn from it, and she's gonna beat me dozens of times in the future, especially if she keeps playing like that and I keep playing like that. So, exactly. so just thinking about the lovely positive reactions too, and how heartwarming they are with the kids, but also even just with other adults, like how nice it can be to just be in this space that is both genuinely playful in the sense, not just in the sense of it's a game, but just we're having fun with it while also fucking up and being horrible. And we can both be frustrated and also just having a ball. And that's a great place to be. And I invite other people to try and figure out how to get there. I invite all of us to think about what we can do to create spaces where that becomes the norm I think that I do try and model that behavior. I hope that people watching my opponent and I trade blunders and laugh about it sends an image of what strong chess players, strong relative to Nebraska, can look like that looks different than some of the stronger but not as strong as us players who throw tantrums every time they lose a game. Yeah, well said. And you know who would never throw a chess piece? Ding Ding Miran. Miran. (laughs) Jinx, that was a good one. Yeah. Even I remember watching some early narrated ski streams like pre pandemic and especially in Bullet, like slam his mouse and break it. And I know that's not the norm. And I know he's not an angry guy. And this was also early into my easing back into chess. And I saw that and had this visceral, like, nope, that's not what I need more of in this space. Right. Uh, It's interesting, though. To me, that kind of is an important difference. Mm -hmm. It it is such Mm -hmm. a pressure on streamers because i know that when i'm in the privacy of my own home and i lose a chess game sometimes it feels good to let out a few expletives and again that's the regulation piece that's not a way that i would behave or a way that i would show up when i'm around other people because of how instantly i can understand that that makes them feel and also makes Mm -hmm. me look right right so i can understand it the way that line gets kind of blurred and for a streamer think Mm -hmm. about how many hours dania is playing chess online i mean to say, like, never react, never throw the mouse. So I know that's not what you're saying. No. I imagine it might even actually be nice for some people to see like, a very human yes. reaction and it might normalize yes. and validate some things. But I also hear what you're saying. What it's touching for you is that sensitivity that you have because of your experiences, especially mm-hmm. the thing that turned you off of chess for a decade. Like, if mm-hmm. I see any hint of this, it's a real turnoff. Exactly. And the more I've been back in the space and thinking about it, like the more tolerance I have for that or the more of the appreciation of what you're describing of, okay, yeah, these are people acting in their home like I do in my home when the camera is off and there's something kind of nice about that too. But definitely like dipping my toe back into chess and seeing that it's like, "Ah, no, and it really wasn't until I started talking to you and hearing about your positive experiences getting into chess from watching his videos that I even took him seriously as a streamer again, honestly. Yeah. And in fact, that's actually something I really like is seeing how he responds. And there is a little bit of an intensity. And again, I kind of like that, but it also depends on what I'm in the mood for. People might know if they follow me online, like who is my all-time favorite, favorite streamer? It's got to be Eric Rosen. Nakamura. With his cup of tea. That vibe to me is sacred. And just the ease in which he responds. I know it's just a personality trait. Not everyone's going to bring that to the table. But man, that is so attractive to me. And to go full circle, I even hear a slightly tinted Russian accent. I don't even know whose it is. Of somebody saying, yeah, and that lack of intensity is why he'll never be a GM. And that's what I love about Ding Li Ren. Why not both? Yeah. 
Or also what I think a lot of people don't like about Ding Liren is because it is easy to buy into this myth that yeah, myth. if you don't just have this passion or frustration when you lose, but if you don't just have this unbridled, fuck everyone else, I'm the main character, and you will bow to me anger at losing that a lot of great world champions like Magnus Carlsen and other world champions like Bobby Fischer had of this absolute anger when they lose that there's no way to achieve greatness without it. And then you see someone like a Ding Li Ren who doesn't bring that attitude to the table. And yeah, maybe wasn't the most dominant world championship performance of all time, but world champion. There's something really nice about the ways that some of these ultra-talented world championship men can dispel the myth that you need to be, frankly, an asshole, or at least that kind of asshole to make it to that level. Yeah. Also, most of the men who act this way won't make it to that level. Yeah, I was going to chime in with that. That might have actually distinctly not been what Ding needed to bring to the table for that set of games. So there's a way I think the intensity gets really conflated with the talent. And I'm glad that you point out some examples where that is not a one-to-one function. And maybe also the ways that intensity can really separate from the aggression or just the, we agree, misnomer, but to say like the tantrumness. Like, I'm sure intensity is why he's studying 12 hours a day. You know, I'm sure intensity is why, like. Right. And this is what I think is so interesting, because something that you and I talk about on this podcast a lot is how do we think about emotions? How do we think about the quote unquote psychology of chess? How do we think about the emotional experience of playing a game and how to harness that in ways that feels adaptive instead of maladaptive? But this is something Mm -hmm. that I see a lot in my practice, specifically with male clients that I work with, specifically with male clients that I work with who are coming to therapy for couples therapy in the Mm. context of maybe it wasn't even quite their decision to come. Mm. Sometimes anger might be the only emotion that they feel like they have access to or almost Mm. a permission to express Mm. and for that to actually show up in any capacity. We kind of talked about this in our last episode, like most emotions are really useful. Anger is so distinctly unuseful, particularly in a therapy context. There's couples therapists who say, I literally do not let my patients express anger, resentment, entitlement, anything in that category. You'll hear it described as a secondary emotion. It's not useful because it's actually not conveying the actual information. For example, anger shows up when people feel scared. So if I feel backed into a corner, now I'm going to act with aggression. But it's actually not indicative of the real underlying experience for that person. So it's interesting how anger is so front and center in a lot of ways is the only emotion that we even sort of expect to see or have normalized in the Mm -hmm. chess world when, I don't know, I might argue it's literally the worst one. Oh, definitely. It's And another way to say the same thing is there's this way in which anger can present itself as this convenient shield from the actual emotion. If I was waiting months to get to play the one person in the state who's higher rated than me, and then I botch the game in the opening when I do... I imagine that I could feel disappointed. I imagine I could feel frustrated that I let myself down. I imagine I could feel embarrassed that I played so poorly when I wanted to show this person and myself that I could keep up with them. There's a lot of feelings that I imagine could bubble to the surface. And if instead I go, fuck, 
I fuck that up and storm off, then I don't have to show any of them. I also heard you mention not only present, but also access. And it's not just show publicly, but I don't even have to access those things. I can just be mad so I don't have to feel to myself embarrassed. Yeah, absolutely. There's no real vulnerability there. The vulnerability might be like, hey, this game meant a lot to me. And that's why they kind of think of anger as this, quote unquote, secondary emotion. I imagine we might have listeners who are hearing some of this and saying, damn, yeah, I do want to work on this. Or maybe even, okay, if I wanted to work on this or talk to other people about working on this, I don't even know where I would start. In the sense of in my own games, yeah, I get pretty pissed off when I lose over the board and I would like to change that. And I've always viewed it as something that I didn't have control over or was inevitable. And now that I'm realizing that I could change that, I don't even know how. Mm. Ask a therapist. (laughs) Yeah. The first thing I'll say is that if that is showing up in this context, it's very unlikely that this is the only context in which you're probably experiencing this type of dysregulated emotional outburst or experience. So there might be an overlapping pattern that's worth paying attention to where when I feel angry, the narrative for myself is that I do not have control and that it is either okay or at least inevitable that I will lash out in some capacity. Mm -hmm. That is very worth working on. That is something that will have a measurable negative impact on your relationships, on your quality of life, on your ability to respond effectively or in the way that you would like in a lot of scenarios. So just to say, that's a really worthwhile goal. I do think that going to therapy or that type of skill building in terms of the regulation would be a really good idea. Well, you're biased. (laughs) Well, sure. And that's just to pad my future website for chest therapy. (laughs) But um, I'm actually actively disinterested in working with men who are angry in therapy. That's actually a space where I don't feel very safe and I don't think I'm the most effective therapist. Those are not patients that I'm eager to pick up, we'll say. If we're thinking about like a soundbite, something I can offer for people, one thing that I would invite them to think about is that there probably are contexts, like I mentioned earlier, where that regulation feels really automatic. There's probably people that you surround yourself with where you would not lose your temper. So there is a skill, there is a muscle there, but you are turning that light switch on and off contextually. So if you can start to contextualize more of these environments and scenarios and interpersonal relationships as one in which that is not on the table, you might be able to tap into a skill that you already have. That is helpful. I think this is really helpful reframing because I'm thinking about why might people be able to work up that skill in certain contexts and then not bring it to the chess context. And one might be the competition aspect, the adrenaline aspect, or a lot of people probably work jobs and are in social situations for most of their lives where they don't really feel as (laughs) invested in it as they do a game of chess. And maybe some of what makes it harder is that. But I think the other major Part of it is when you're in a context where other people are losing and swearing or when someone's Mm. throwing pieces, I think it's a lot easier to feel like you're actually exercising that skill because you're not the worst one in the room. Sure. Yeah, there's that normalization. Exactly. A lot of the contexts in which they have built up these skills to regulate their emotions, to maybe be a little more vulnerable or at the very least not lose their cool might be... Mm in settings that are less tied to competition, less tied to adrenaline, less tied 
I'm not sure if there's a secret third thing, but I, I do wonder if there's something on the competition side of thing that makes it harder, especially when we think about how from sports to video games, this kind of outburst is more normalized and the developing of those skills is less central than it is in, say, the workplace or familial relationships. And less valued. It's not even less valued, yeah. something that people are encouraging. There actually might even be a lot of value, again, in being that very explosive personality. I, I think there's places where it's totally okay. And if, for example, you're saying sports, there might be these contained contexts where we understand that it shows up in maybe even actually a useful way. Mm -hmm. That's like a nice channel. You can think about Mean Girls where at the end, Regina George channels all of her aggression into playing lacrosse. Like, okay, there's a way that we can maybe kind of work with that. But yeah, that's actually exactly what I'm trying to get at, JJ. This idea that mm -hmm. there is a sort of internal but also external permission. Just to loop it mm -hmm. back to how you started this, there's a permission for a type of behavior. And until that permission changes it would have to be intrinsic, right? It would have to be someone saying, wow, I realize that this is a really actually kind of embarrassing way to behave and I want to change it, even though the cultural context is normalizing and validating this. Well, it starts with you. I do hope that people can reflect on this or find ways to talk to other people about this or think about it a little bit because a lot of the ways that we do normalize this in chess space, like in other competition spaces, or even lionize this in some of our heroes, definitely makes it harder to just pick up on the ways in which this could be negative and then trying to internalize and change those permissions can be really hard when you're fighting against a culture, but it doesn't mean it's not important or that it's not possible. Absolutely. 100%. If we want to just pile on in terms of the tournament etiquette, this is kind yeah. of a different direction, but I uh -huh. have seen an interesting discourse online recently. Was it Strong Pod who tweeted, essentially, when you show up at the board, nothing except for the pieces, your clock, your sheet and your pen should be on the table. I feel like there was something about orange juice. People do not want foods. I think oranges and orange juice were both not allowed. Let me look. In my mind, it was a different man, David Yada, who tweeted Oh, that's that. fine. Yeah, yeah. It probably was. But, You're right. Oh, no, no. But this actually makes a difference, though, because David is one of the most prominent chess photographers in the world. So mm -hmm. I think that his opinions. I think that if I was trying to get the composition of a shot and there's just food and water bottles and shit on the table, that might shape my opinion on what should be on the board in a different way. Okay, but do we still want to talk about it? Or you're yes. like, no, then it's yes. worth it. No, yes I, yes, I do either way. And I definitely think we can find ways to make fun of Strong Todd in particular. Oh, also, Magnus, especially when he was younger, would come to the table with like multiple bottles of orange juice. So I think that's why that was a central part of the discussion. Oh, okay. That's funny. But I will say it's definitely annoying when I'm cropping photos to put on article covers or something for work. And there's branded soda bottles or something right in the center. And I'm like, well, first of all, could they sue us for this? Second of all, do we want to give them the free advertising? But third of all, I'm like cutting out half of their face if I don't put it in there. I, I only say I think it was Yada because from the photo side, yeah, I would love it if none of that shit was there. It would make it a lot easier to get and share a good photo of a chess player. But now, hypothetically, if a tournament player like Strong Todd were to say that, what would we think about him for saying that? Mm. I'm curious what you think about it, though, JJ, because mm -hmm. you're someone who's actually played in tournaments. And you know I have my own biases in this particular yeah. realm. I think I would strongly prefer a space in which we could show up for 
one or a couple of hours and not have things that are potentially messy, malodorous, and just extraneous and unnecessary at the table. Um, Julia, you're describing half of my opponents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Malodorous, messy, and extraneous. On day three of a <laughs> tournament, that that's me. Exactly. So yeah, I guess I have that bend. I know what I would prefer. I know that I would strongly prefer people who are not eating at a chess tournament. Let's just remove the potential hazards and variables. But if someone feels a very strong need to have beverages besides water or foods, I don't, you know me, I, I don't like to tell people what to do. I, I'm curious what you think as someone who attends these events, JJ. Yeah, some tournaments have specific rules. Sometimes it's because of organizer preferences. Sometimes it's because the uh, venue just says no food in the playing hall. And that's something that the organizers have to enforce. The convention that seems to be common is try to take your food away from the board when you're going to eat it. But if you have the food, whether on the table or under the table, that's not that big of a deal. But try to take it away from the table when you're consuming. And don't you fucking dare consume it on your opponent's time at the board. Oh, say more about that. I, I was not expecting oh, you to Oh, if you that. are going to be eating something at the board, mm -hmm. I think that if you're doing it on your own time, there's some grace for this person is hungry and is not going to walk away from the board to refuel when their clock is ticking. Okay. Versus when it's their opponent's turn and they're still sitting at the board and eating in a way that could be malodorous, could be distracting. And it's their opponent's turn and their opponent is thinking that is like... Bad etiquette. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I did not know that. What an interesting detail. And I mean, I can imagine that I would have to know the rules of the tournament in particular in order to know whether I would feel comfortable alerting a TD that, hey, this person is chewing at the board and it's distracting me, even though it's yeah. their turn. Take them away. But if it was my turn, I would either ask them or ask the TD to ask them to step away from the board if they're going to do that. Okay. Okay. I didn't know that. I'm also pretty extreme on the my time and your time are two totally different universes with their own sets of rules. And I believe I'm following a lot of the rules here in my belief, but I've just noticed that I enforce them a lot more than other people. So etiquette is you're not supposed to adjust pieces on your opponent's time. So if you make a move and want to adjust a piece, you should adjust that piece before you hit the clock versus make the move, hit the clock immediately, realize things are messy, and then on your opponent's time, start adjusting pieces. You're not supposed to do that. A lot of people do that. A lot of people seem tolerant of that. I'm super intolerant of that. I've had to explain that that's against the rules to people multiple times. Similarly, when you want to offer a draw, you're supposed to make the move, offer the draw, then hit the clock. You are not supposed to offer the draw on your opponent's time. You are certainly not supposed to make the move, think about it for five minutes, your opponent's deep in thought, and then go draw in the middle of thought. That's mm. These are things you're not supposed to do. So there are rules in chess that aren't always taught or enforced that are very much about how if you are going to do something like adjust a piece or offer a draw, you do it before you hit the clock. You do it on your own time. And I would okay. put, if you have to eat at the board, I would put that in the category. But I also should say that I'm way more on the extreme. You better fucking do that on your own time okay, than a lot of people interesting. are. But I'm right. And the rules back me up. Okay, yeah. I've never looked the rules up on this, but they do back me up. Okay, fascinating. Fascinating. I, I feel like also food choice matters. I really wonder about this. And that's one I think where 
I wish that I lived in a civilized nation because mm-hmm. oftentimes mm-hmm. with multiple rounds a, game, a day with a lack of options or opportunities for refrigeration and with a real poverty of options for takeout or food to get between rounds, there's just not always going to be opportunities to bring the most ideal and respectful foods to the board. I know. What would those be? Can we give a little bit of oh, a guide question. to our yeah. listeners? If you are someone and you know you are going to need that mid-game snack, mm-hmm. you cannot make it to the end. What mm-hmm. should we be packing? Mm-hmm. I would say that if you're looking for things that you could even eat at the table on your own time, of course, mm-hmm. then... Of course. I'd be thinking I've done peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I've done like deli sandwiches for the veggies so out I there. I was thinking sandwich. peanut butter jelly. That was mm-hmm. one of the things I thought of. And be a little thought, lip smacky though. Yeah. What about those anaphylactic allergies out there? As an Ashkenazi mm-hmm. Jew, there's mm-hmm. a few people in my family where this is life or death. Maybe that's not the move. Well, I was going to say shrimp scampi next. So this actually, <laughs> I'm out of ideas now. Very specific. Lobster bisque. This is hard. I mean, this is why the away from the board option is usually the way to go. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. energy bars and things like that are useful because the major downside to them is the wrapper and the crinkling. So that's why I wanted Mm -hmm. to distinguish between eating at the board and away from the board is I'm not trying to unwrap an energy bar at the board. But if I can sneak out, then that's a nice little handheld thing that is pretty smell texture neutral. Gotta have your protein, I've been told. That's a dunk on diet culture, people. Okay, what else? What are some of our other top tournament gripes? Let's really, let's get it all out. Let's get everything off our chest today. yeah. Yeah, This is actually pretty related. Tournament directors talking to players during games. And I don't mean like shooting the shit away from the board. Like, hey, friend who I know, how's it going? Although Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. probably against the rules too. It's just, it's fine. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. I've been to multiple tournaments where the director has confronted or accosted a player on that player's own time about perceived but incredibly minor potential rule violations. Oh, interesting. Those include but are not limited to making a move before writing down the opponent's previous move in a position where neither player is in time trouble. That's the kind of thing that I've seen a director of a federated event tell somebody on their own time when thinking of their next move, like stop them, pull them and be like, hey, you can't do that. Now, if this happens to someone, mm -hmm. can they feel Mm -hmm. empowered to say, wait till I hit my clock? They can feel empowered, but I also think the damage is done when somebody starts talking to you on your turn. That's the exact phrase I was going to use. Yeah, you can advocate for yourself, but the set has already shifted. I... At the same tournament, the board next to that person, same round, same motherfucker, oh, came up to me when I was bringing my sandwich that I was eating outside the tournament hall. I brought it into the tournament hall when I saw that it was my turn. I'm holding the food, but I'm not eating the food. As I sit down, I'm starting to calculate. It was a forcing move that I wasn't really expecting, and so I'm already like in deep focus mode. And motherfucker comes up to me. He's like, you can't eat at the board. Lay down the law. Like the person next to me who was really caught off guard and spent the next five minutes trying to refocus after being shocked by that (laughs) about writing things down. 
I was definitely very jarred and struggled with that for quite a while. So that was the same motherfucker doing that to two people on their own time. And we both complained, but we can complain to the chief arbiter who employs this person, but especially if the chief Mm -hmm. arbiter and the person they've employed have a good relation, that's only going to go so far. That might be another gripe. How corrupt are these shindigs? Fide must condemn. (laughs) I've noticed Fide has not been condemning. No, Fidig has condemned all sorts of shit. Like what? They've condemned well, they can they've condemned Ali Reza for making a mockery of the obvious holes in their own system that they've implemented. They've condemned mm. Lanier Dominguez for not playing as many tournaments as they wanted him to play, even though they forgot to say how many that was. Mm. Classic foil. They've condemned Peter Heine Nielsen for asking why they keep partnering with a bunch of Russian companies even after they promised they didn't. I hate it when people notice the things that you do and just say them out loud. Isn't that It's like Vladimir Kramnik putting his Twitter on private because people keep misrepresenting what he said and then you realize what he's referring to is people quote-tweeting him. hate it when that happens. The other tournament director, Travesty, I've seen. Different motherfucker, different coast. This wasn't even a rules violation. This was somebody, Mm. there was something about the website registration where I think it didn't charge you the extra $20 if you didn't register early enough. And so he was going around manually trying to find the people who owed 20 bucks and tell them, but found that it was difficult to do that and find these people between rounds. So he started going up to them during their games, including (laughs) on their own time to tell them that they still owed him $20. Yeah, there has to be a better way of doing that. That that cannot be. That is when I realized that while I am still anti-carceral, I am not anti-death penalty. That's pretty egregious. I'm not going to lie. Okay, that's pretty yeah. bad. Okay, so don't interrupt. Yeah. What else is on your list? Don't interrupt. Don't interrupt. <laughs> don't even think about interrupting. All of these things really do turn me off. I feel like there was a very short period of time where I was just really disappointed because of Mm -hmm. COVID and my PhD and other life stuff that I really could not fit in tournament play. But the more that people describe it, honestly, sometimes I feel like maybe I just really wasn't missing out. Like that grass definitely seems a little greener. I kind of want to talk about this for a second, actually, if that's cool. Very cool. Because I'm realizing that the only logical takeaway for listeners who have not played tournaments before or much or outside of maybe a small local club or outside of actually well-run national events but haven't gotten to a small local club, I imagine the only logical reaction to hearing this conversation is, damn, I do not want to do that. Right. And maybe from the standpoint of understanding why this person wants to preserve their own well-being, I see why from their perspective that might just actually be the best choice they can make. And so I don't want to be like, no, you have to play. But yeah, like get then, out there, kiddo. But from the hashtag grow the game perspective, from the I personally would prefer the chess tournament rooms to be filled with the people who find the things we're describing egregious rather than filled with the people who don't find the things we're describing egregious. Yeah, and that's a really them. good point. Yeah. I would like them to play. So I do kind sure. of want to talk about I mean, I don't even think I can go as far as, no, you should play. But I do want to call attention to the fact that it sure sounds like the reaction Julia is describing of maybe I dodged a bullet there 
Well, for you, yeah, you dodged a bullet for sure. But I, I don't know. Tournaments can be really fun. Tournaments are certainly the best way to improve at chess. The ability to throw yourself into such slow games of chess and have nothing else matter for hours at a time is an incredibly wonderful experience that online chess and faster games do not replicate. And I want everyone who's even thought for a second that maybe they want to experience that to experience Mm -hmm. that. And I don't want any Mm -hmm. of these conversations to dissuade them from that. But I also don't feel entirely ethical saying, suck it up, kiddo, or saying, no, it's not all that bad. And I don't know what to say there. (laughs) And if you have thoughts, please jump in. But My first thought is to say for every bad experience, you know, I've had lots of not bad experiences or even good experiences. I think maybe, maybe hopefully being armed with some knowledge of what to expect in some of the worst case scenarios might make those worst case scenarios less shocking. And Mm -hmm. if you're prepared to know what the bad scenarios can be, then you can go to some tournaments and if they suck, then you know you hit a bad one. And if they don't suck, then you can be relieved you didn't. And now you know of a tournament that tends to be pretty all right and safe, and you can keep going to that one or ones that those people organize. Right, right. I mean, I I do actually feel like going in with that sort of skepticism or at least discernment. Just look around, see what's an environment you'd like. Your time is valuable. And this is interesting. This kind of ties back to the beginning of the conversation. I don't think everyone who wants to go play chess necessarily needs to be thinking about all the variables and needs to discern. And that's an unfortunate reality. That's an unfortunate inequality. I also think it's very prudent for the people who might really benefit from being a little bit more thoughtful about where they spend their time and who they spend their time around. You still maybe ought to think about it that way. Yeah. And on all of these things, griping can be a really nice and cathartic way for people to bond over shared experiences they've had that are negative Mm -hmm. and that can feel very alienating or off-putting, but then the bonding can be a sort of connective or reconnective activity that makes it easier for them to return to it. And Mm -hmm. I don't want a consequence of that to be alienating other people from that experience. It also feels weird to say, and if you don't like it, organize your own tournaments. But at least in the U.S., it is insanely easy to become a TD. You check a box. If you're an active U.S. chess member, you check a box saying that you've read the rules. And I guess now there's like one more screening you have to go through and a training for safe sport that's 19, I think, dollars. But previously, it was just literally checking a box saying you've read the rules and have a copy of the rulebook handy. But oh, now it's terrifying. Yes. Now it's that plus the screening. But it's it's insanely easy to the point where when I say, if you don't like it, you could try to run your own tournaments. It feels like that actually can be a more practical <laughs> advice. And yeah, especially, especially if you have access to a space whether it's a library or closed business or lots of other places, it can be pretty possible to run your own tournament and invite people who you actually trust and like and still get eight or 12 people there, especially if you have like a club or friend community of similar levels and actually create your own environment that's still like a rated tournament and isn't necessarily just floating into whatever's already out there, good or bad, comfortable or uncomfortable. And everyone there can establish a new norm of only eating inoffensive foods Mm -hmm. and not asking the women on dates Mm -hmm. 
And no one throws the chess pieces. What else should we add to the bylaws? One of this week's scandals is how the current FIDE president ran on instituting a two-term limit for FIDE president and has now bribed a bunch of officials to reverse that so he can be president for life. I wish there was a way where if you did something like that, it's essentially like a blunder. And mm-hmm. as soon as you try to implement it, it's as if you blunder mate and then you're immediately ejected. Like it was a test. Mm-hmm. Let's see mm-hmm. if you will uphold the standard. We'll let you mm-hmm. think you can implement a new term law here. Absolutely not. Get the fuck out. But instead, it functions like a blunder in chess that isn't a blunder of mate, where it's just this unplayable position and everyone, every onlooker who walks by is like, why are they still playing? But then they get to play for as long as they want. Then they're kind of like adding their own pieces. They're like, oh, I'm losing. Let me put a pawn right here on the back rank. I'm ready to promote. I didn't touch the piece. My clock never runs, bitch. Yeah, I wish I had more hopeful, optimistic, like you should play tournaments, but maybe. No, uh, no, no. You, I think you nailed it. Like, look, if you want to play, play. Try to find groups where people are like-minded. You can even run your own, but... I mean, these are gripes. That's what the episode was about. I I don't feel like you need to say more unless you feel like there's something specific. The only other thing I'll add is bringing a buddy can be nice. If you don't have a buddy, a good reason to make a friend who plays chess Mm -hmm. or just in general is to have somebody who you could go to these events with, especially if we're thinking bigger events that tend to have lots of tiered sections by rating. Even if, Mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about a strong club player, if you have a buddy who's 900 and you go to a big enough tournament, there's probably an under 1,000 or an under 1,200 section. And just having somebody who you know can be there as you want to process any of the grapes if things do go bad can be really nice. And there are online, if you found us, you're probably close enough to either online communities on Chess Twitter or some of the Discord servers like Chess Dojo, where there are lots of people who are committed to chess improvement and who are going to tournaments and stuff. And it feels at least possible to try and find a buddy rather than having to convert one of your already existing friends into a chess player. And that's something that maybe can actually be useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the ways that I try to find chess buddies is I just look to see who JJ follows back on Twitter. So if you that follow is a me, useful way. Yeah. <laughs> and JJ seems to like you. I might let you into my circle. That That is useful. The way that I try to find chess buddies is I tweet something that's really unhinged <laughs> and it will be liked by like eight of my favorite people who I follow and one person who follows me who I don't follow. And then they're my new friend. It's a good method. I approve of that. Like basically what I do. I just see who interacts with you and seems goofy. So we should probably dedicate this pod to Aaron Dietz. I was literally about to say that's how I found my second favorite person on Twitter who just literally took five months off. And Aaron, if you're listening to this, Sorry. what the fuck? Come back. I mean, yeah, fuck you. Grapes. We have a lot of problems <laughs> with you people. Namely, I miss you. First, you don't move to Southern California to be my <laughs> friend. That was fucked up. And you know it. Then you don't post a selfie when I ask. Actually, we should all have that right. That's true. I don't want to establish think, that as a bylaw. Uh, I, I can't okay. write a check I can't cash. I think I have a lot of problems with you people. Colin, I miss you is yeah. very much my vibe. <laughs> Title of the episode. All right. Yes. Later, losers. Later, losers. One, one. Yeah.